0: You get nervous coming to an event like this. Uh, you walk in and you wonder what new thing am I going to have to learn and master that is now essential for me to have a good marriage? You know, is it that I'm going to have to learn a whole new set of love languages? Is it that I need to understand all the differences between men and women? what it is to have pink glasses and blue glasses, Uh, the differences at the genetic level. One of us is from Mars, the other one's from Venus, one of us likes spaghetti, the other one likes waffles. Uh, Is it birth order? You know, is it that we have to understand where we were within our family? Are we type A, type B? Is it temperament? Do we need to know our Myers-Briggs type indicator 16-point personality test? Do we need to know the DISC? Do we need to know whether we're a lion, otter, beaver, golden retriever? Is it that we've got to know the ratio of love deposits that we need to make and what each one of us wants in order to get this just right so that our love bakes at just the right temperature? Uh, Is it that it's left brain, right brain? One of us is artistic, the other one is rational. Uh, Is it our family of origin dynamics? Maybe it's our learning styles. Maybe it's a whole nother set of techniques just to have a new spouse by Friday. It, let me, let me kind of walk you through that in a bit of a case study that, that I don't think is that outlandish. Just think for a moment if you have Jim and Jane. Uh, Jim is a guy. Jane is a girl. There's lots of differences there. Jim's love languages would be physical touch and affirmation. Jane's love languages would be quality time and acts of service. Uh, Jim was a middle child. Uh, Jane, on the other hand, was a firstborn, but she was a part of a blended family, and so later on she became a middleborn when her mom remarried and other children who were older than her came into the family. By temperament, Jim was an ISTJ and Jane was an ENFP. You may not know what those letters mean, but that means when they were dating, they complimented one another wonderfully. And that means once they got married, they had nothing in common anymore. Uh, Now, Jim's uh, love deposit ratio was about a two to a four to one because he came from a rather unaffectionate home of origin, and he was comfortable with that. Jane, on the other hand, was about 14 to one. Because she's the adult child of an alcoholic looking for all the affirmation that she never got from her parents. It, now, Jim's needs would be a clean house with minimal sound. And Jane's needs would be freedom with minimal external standards bearing down on her in this sense of pressure. Uh, the father influence, Jim wants to be a stable autocratic leader just like his dad was. Jane, on the other hand, fears being hurt by a controlling man like her mom was. Jim is a morning person. Jane is a night owl. Jim's learning style is hands-on. Jane's learning style is auditory. She just wants to talk it all out. Uh, The thermostat, Jim likes it at the most energy-efficient temperature whatsoever. Jane likes the freedom of whatever's going to be most comfortable for her. Jim's sleep number is about 70. Jane's sleep number is about 35. I mean, you come to enough of these kinds of events and you begin to feel like you need a Master's of Arts in Counseling, if not a Ph.D., just to have or begin a good marriage. And if we're honest, with a lot of these things, there's some benefit to them. Now, I don't know about the sleep number thing, and I I think I was beginning to stretch it there a little bit, but a lot of those things we can learn from. But then... We come to an event, we get excited about what's being said, and we go home and we just kind of get lazy with what we learned. Or we grow bored because the new technique is just hard to keep up with. Or maybe those things that we thought we really needed didn't satisfy as much as we thought they were going to when we finally trained our spouse to do them, and the things that we need begins to be a list as long as the IRS tax code. Um, Or maybe it's after an argument and we just get to that point where we stop trying and we start punishing. Or maybe we feel like we've done enough and just, I, I begin to feel like you're taking advantage of me because I feel like I'm doing more for you than you're doing for me. Or just in the busyness of life, it becomes one more thing that is very hard to keep up with. But here would be my big question as really over the last 50 to 75 years where this kind of picture of marriage has come to the forefront, has the condition of marriage radically improved as we have focused more and more on those variables of individual preference? Would we say marriage is in a better spot today than it was 50 to 100 years ago? And that's not to glorify the good old days as if that's where marriage was perfect, But I think it is to say that we have become distracted by so many secondary things uh, that in the words of Yogi Berra, we've missed the main thing, which is to make the main thing the main thing. Uh, And the, the piece is this. When you take secondary things and you make them the primary thing, life gets very complicated and exhausting. You can't keep up with it all. When you make the main thing the main thing and secondary things and tertiary things get to be secondary and tertiary things, you can really enjoy what God intended marriage and life to be for what He wanted it to be. Uh, And so that would be our goal. Uh, Basically, our, our primary contention would be this it's only by rooting our marriage and our marriage preparation in the gospel. That we'll be able to do three things. Uh, one, we'll be able to address the central problem that's at the core of all marital struggles. Uh, two, we'll give a context to allow us to express our individual preferences without being controlled or ruled by them or using them to control or rule our spouse. And third, we'll have the mo- motivation to persevere. Even when we each fail, because we both will fail through the course of marriage, and to give us the motivation to be able to persevere as we both change, because the person that we are when we get married and we stand in front of one another, in front of our family and friends, is not the person we're going to be 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And we need something that grounds what we're doing by way of marriage enrichment uh, that will help us persevere through those changes that exist. And so the first thing that we want to look at, uh, is kind of chapter 1, is why is marriage hard? I mean, when we think about the gospel, uh, the, bo- the gospel begins with a message about who we are as people. The gospel says that we are sinful, broken people in need of a Savior. The gospel seeks to answer the question, why isn't life working the way that we think and feel like it should? And so if we're going to talk about a gospel-centered marriage, one of the questions that would be very natural for us to ask here in the beginning is why is marriage hard? We all go into marriage with great dreams and aspirations that it's going to be wonderful. We go into marriage wanting to bless and enrich our spouse in every way possible. And then life happens and we're not doing that quite as much or in the way that we anticipated we would. Why is that? And I think Paul Tripp helps us get started here. I'm sorry, Winston Smith. He says, our personal dreams for marriage seem so beautiful and convincing that we don't stop to consider that God's dreams for us may be different. And I think here's one of the common struggles that we all face with marriage. We start by thinking of what we want from marriage instead of asking what did God design marriage to be? And when we do that, we define good by what matches our preferences. And that begins to be a very narrow definition of good. And this is kind of surprising to many people, that God would have a broader definition of good than we might. That, that we often think of God's definition of good as being very narrow and restrictive. But oftentimes within a relationship where we are prone to make everything to be just according to our desires and demands, we make the definition of good much more narrow than what God would. Yet, um, and so when that happens, uh, what we forget is that what God promises uh, is to fulfill His purposes more than our dreams. Uh, Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. It is by delighting in what He created and designed that our desires begin to match up to His. And when we call Him Lord, part of what that means is we learn to enjoy everything that He calls good. And some of that is the differences that we find in our spouse and in the journey that he takes us on in marriage. And we have to be open to letting that happen. It, and this is the point where, if you remember the uh, tricks commercial where the rabbit's always trying to steal the cereal, and, and the, uh, the kids say to the rabbit, Silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. Uh, this is the point where we tend to get kind of maybe a little bit defensive, standoffish, and we go, uh, Silly counselor, uh, marriage is for us. Uh, and we would say, No. Marriage is something that God created with a design and purpose to bless us with it. And it is His and we participate in it. This is where if we're going to talk about a gospel-centered marriage, then we have to hit those same themes that we hit everywhere else with the gospel. And I think a wonderful orienting passage for us on that uh, would be Luke 9, 23 and 24. Where Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If anyone seeks to gain his life, he'll lose it. But if anyone is willing to lose his life for my sake and the gospel, he'll find it. And that is my challenge that I put before us as we seek to find out what a gospel-centered marriage is. It's for us to be willing to lose ourselves in him what he intended marriage to be and find the life that we could never have imagined if we had taken our desires and put them as the forefront as the first thing, in God's design at the bottom as the second thing. Now, as we do that, um, in our time together, we're going to look in this first section at about 10 challenges. In the full notebook there, you'll see we put about 20 of those. Uh, we're only going to cover 10 here in the verbal part. Uh, in the fuller notebook, we give you three or four conversations for each of these that you can go through. Uh, Now, I would say if you hear this and it begins to feel like I'm stepping on your toes, don't be discouraged by that. Don't start thinking, great, we're not doing anything right. Uh, Allow that to encourage you to say, the gospel speaks to the challenges that we are facing. If I hear in the things that he's talking about is what makes marriage hard, and that's where we're set up, ready to go, and that's what the gospel is going to speak to, then this is exactly where I ought to be. And I would also say this. Uh, This material that we're covering uh, in this Gospel-Centered Marriage series, it's meant to be a uh, marriage preparation and a marriage enrichment material. Uh, It's not a um, marriage restoration or crisis intervention material. Uh, If your marriage is in crisis, I think what you will get from this is a sense of where you want to be and what God has designed. Uh, But the tone and the emphasis of this will be for marriage preparation and marriage enrichment. Uh, and for some of us, that may just be a helpful orientation point as we get started. Um, but one of the first things that I think makes marriage hard is that it's just the mundane nature of everyday life. Uh, marriage is a glorious thing lived in very ordinary times. Uh, I mean, most of what we think about for marriage, it. It's a dream, even if what Winston Mississippi says, our personal dreams, what we want it to be. And we're going to live that out in a day when we wake up with morning breath and bedhead, And where we go to work. And every day kind of looks like the day before. And the dreams that we have may take weeks or months or years to attain and we don't see the incremental changes that are getting us there. But take this as just an orienting statement. Uh, The ordinary moments of marriage are often the most significant. And because we miss that, uh, we keep waiting for those big moments, and we think that a date night is going to be what makes everything better, when we can get that three-day trip, just the two of us. And it's those ordinary moments of day-to-day life that is really going to be the the special and life-giving moments of marriage. Uh, off of this, the third thing on your list in your notebook is just when we change, when we marry, we change from an investor to an owner. Uh, the house that we now live in, I like to call it a foreclosure. My wife reminds me we were just on the brink of foreclosure the house was when we bought it. Uh, but when we looked at that house, it, it had so much potential. Once we moved into it, It had problems that needed to be fixed when we were looking at the house it was a great deal once we moved into the house it was a great deal of work Um, when when we are dating we approach that relationship as an investor we see everything that it could be when we get married and say death do our till death do us part we are now owned by this relationship And all of the things that could be become things that we now have to do. And those dreams take on a different flavor to them. And and that takes us to where Paul Tripp goes. He says, I'm persuaded it is more regular than irregular for couples to get married with unrealistic expectations. The person who was once your escape from responsibility has become your most significant responsibility. Spending time together is radically different from living together. Reasons for attraction now become sources of irritation. Marriages don't typically change with an explosion. Marriages typically change by the process of erosion. And he talks there about unrealistic expectations. Uh, and on your list there, we'll look at numbers 7, 8, and 9. Uh, just three areas where I think it's very common for us to have unrealistic expectations. One is uh, just for what, what is marriage going to do? You hear some people talk about marriage and it's as if marriage is Jesus' rival for bringing salvation to the world and peace to men's souls. Uh, that's not marriage. That's codependency. When I think another person is going to come in and make everything in my life better... That is placing a burden on the marriage relationship of another human being that they just weren't created to bear. And when I begin to treat my spouse as if they are going to be my savior, uh, that is much more akin to what we would call uh, codependency. Here would be my, my illustration for that. Uh, marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. And it's the gospel that is meant to be what satisfies our soul. And so in that sense, marriage is to gospel like commercials are to Gatorade. If I watch a Gatorade commercial and I'm thirsty, that just ticks me off. It's not not helping me at all. It's just rubbing my face in it that it's not doing what it's supposed to do. If I've had a Gatorade and I watch the commercial, I amen the commercial. That is so good. You're right. It replenishes you so much better than water. That commercial is telling the truth. It's not a bait and switch. When we have experienced what God intends for us to experience in the gospel, then our marriage is a wonderful daily reminder of that. When we are trying to rely on the commercial instead of the primary thing that God intended, then it just frustrates the mess out of us that it's not doing what it was supposed to do. But for some of us, it's not the the marriage entity itself, it's our spouse that we get uh, these overly high expectations for. And, you know, all the Hallmark cards and that kind of thing, they they say, You complete me. Uh, And I'm kind of a sappy person. I've probably said that to my wife many times. But if we really expect uh, our spouse to complete us, then what happens in that moment is. Our sin becomes their fault, and their sin becomes our fault. Because if if I'm not doing something right, it's because you're not completing me anymore. And all of a sudden, this idea of you complete me becomes this really nice romantic undertone for a blame shift. And we expect, again, our spouse to do something that is more than what they were created to do. Now here's a balancing statement that I will put here. Um, Of all the temptations that we could place our marriage in, in many ways I think this is the preferred temptation. If you think of all the places that, like a big circle, and inside that circle is safety, we're not going to live at the center where there is no temptation. We live in the midst of a fallen, broken world. And if you ask me, Brad, of all the things we're going to talk about, on what border of temptation would you choose to put your marriage? It's this one where I am tempted to think too much of my spouse, where I love them on the brink of making them an idol. Because if I had to choose between my wife thinking that I neglected her or I held her on a pedestal, I would much rather her face the temptation of taking me for granted than wondering if I was going to fulfill where I was. Now, at the same time, if we're going to do that, we also need to recognize that that is a temptation. We are living on the border of a place that that it's very easy to expect more than what this person is going to be able to give. But I hope if you hear the tone of where we are going with this material, that you would walk away going, yes, that is the border that we want to live on. Where we are so loving one another and relying on one another and pointing each other to Christ that that sometimes I forget that it is Christ that I'm being pointed to because I love and enjoy you so much. But we need to be recognizing that it is ultimately Christ that we are being pointed to. Um but maybe it's not marriage, maybe it's not my spouse, maybe it's just love itself. Uh, Because I think there's times when we get dyslexic with 1 John 4.8. 1 John 4.8 says God is love. Uh, And sometimes we begin to live as if love is God. And love is what was going to make everything better. And uh, love is not God's ultimate attribute. Holiness is God's ultimate attribute. Holiness is all of God's attributes operating in unity. His love, His justice, His wisdom, His wrath, all of those attributes operating in unity with no tension between them. That is God's holiness. And oftentimes what we do is we take our favorite attribute Maybe if we're sentimental people, it's love. Maybe if we're really academic people, it's God's wisdom. Maybe if we're really authority people, then it's like God's sovereignty. And we get this warped view of who God is. It's kind of like when I was a kid and we would play basketball. And we'd let the basketball get under my mom's van. And she would back over it. And then there'd be this big lump on the basketball. And you couldn't dribble it anymore because it wasn't a circle. And it would just... Um, we we often get a view of God that way. And it shows up when we think marriage is going to be what makes everything okay. And it's as if loneliness is the greatest problem of the human condition instead of our sinfulness and our brokenness. And we begin to construe all of life that way. And again, it's one of those backdoor areas where we begin to approach marriage for something other than What the gospel offers, and we begin to cling to our marriage saying, Make it better. And we're asking something from it that it's ill prepared to give. Now, um, so we move to a quote here from Tim Keller. He says, But here's the problem my wife does not learn about my sins like a physician learns about my diseases. Or my counselor learns about my anger or fear. She knows my sins because they are so often committed against her. And there's the great problem of marriage. The one person in the whole world who holds your heart in her hands, whose approval and affirmation you most long for and need, is the one who is hurt more deeply by your sins than anyone else on the planet. Marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as it confronts you with yourself. Marriage shows you a realistic, unflattering picture of who you are and then takes you by the scruff of the neck and forces you to pay attention to it. Uh, again, it's, it's not the most flattering picture, but every marriage is two sinners in the same household, sharing the same space and the same money and the same time and trying to do that together. And one of the things that makes marriage hard is that we are both center and self-centered. And for the moment, I'd like to pull those two apart for us. You know, we're a sinner; We want things our way. We want them according to our preferences. We want them on our timetable. We're selfish. I mean, we can admit this, right? But we're not just selfish. We're also self-centered. We naturally see the world only from our perspective. These are the only two eyes from which I ever get to see the world. We only experience things as they affect us and we only remember things from our vantage point i'm not i'm not just full of myself and as a selfish sinner i am full of myself i'm also trapped in myself i'm an embodied soul and this is the only experience of life that i get And I think there's two implications from that that we need to take. One is this. If in my mental scorecard, I'm not radically winning in my marriage, if I don't feel like I am doing exponentially more for my wife than she is doing for me, then I'm really losing. Because I know everything I do for my wife. I know every fine thought of her. I know every time I defer a preference because this is something that I would like to do but this is something she would like to do better. Because I live in me and I am trapped in me and all I know is me. I know every time I do that. And I may see one-tenth, one-twentieth of what she does for me. And if I'm not radically winning... In my own mind, I am radically losing. Now, a second thing that I think we can take from that as an implication is we begin to see why God can love perfectly and we can't. Because God is spirit and he is not bound by space and time, and he is in each one of us. He is, he gets to see things from all perspectives and care and the limitation that we have of being body-bound creatures limits our ability to love in the way that we would want to even at those times when we want to most. And we begin to see that God is unfettered by that. And it's the the reason why only His love can satisfy and do for us what we so want done uh, in marriage. And so as we talk about being sinners and self-centered, I don't want us to think that everything that we want is bad. But I would say this, everything that goes on bad within a marriage in terms of one person hurting the other is because of one of us wanting something too much and trying to impose or trying to over-prioritize that on the other. And so our desires in and of themselves aren't bad, but they tend to run away with us, and we need to be aware of that. And that's why as a gospel-centered marriage series, everything that we do in these five seminars on foundations and communication, budgeting, decision-making, and intimacy, is to counter this sin-bent nature that we have in these key areas of marital interaction. Now, another challenge that we face is that we begin to view compatibility as a noun instead of a verb. Uh, we think this aspect of click and really getting along and having that spark, we begin to think it's a thing instead of a verb, something that we do. We treat it like a cupcake, something that we would share, like an eye color, something we both have, instead of treating it like a conversation or treating it like synchronized swimming, something that we do. Because realize this. If you take all of the personalities and temperaments that exist in human nature, every combination of human personality has come together in marriage and had a great, thriving, wonderful marriage. And every combination of personality and temperament has come together and they have devoured one another and it has ended in a bitter divorce. And oftentimes people come to me after taking a personality inventory and they go, Do we match? Is the recipe good? What kind of cake is coming out of this? Uh, as if somehow that, that this aspect of compatibility is going to be what really makes it work. Well, and I'm all for those tests. They tell us important things about ourselves. Usually they don't tell us things that a good friend wouldn't go, Duh, I could have told you that. Uh, but it's nice to see that in a way that's objective on a piece of paper. But compatibility is something that we will do. It is a way that we will honor one another. Uh, And sometimes when we begin to think that we're good people who sometimes do bad things, instead of recognizing that we are broken people in need of redemption, we begin to look on all of these secondary things as what's going to make our sin nature go away instead of in those moments turning to Christ and going, God, I desperately need you if I am going to love and honor my spouse in the way that you have called me to. Now, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, um, he's one of our friends over at Duke Divinity School, um, he brought another piece of this to light. He says, Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, Necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry. That if we look close enough, we will find that right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we will always marry the wrong person. Again, what he's saying there is that we are all the wrong person. We are broken. If we think of, if I could think of the perfect person that I would want to bless my wife with, I fall short of that. It, if I could think of who I would want to give her, the kind of person that would respond to her, I don't do that. And again, I think there's things when we get this romantic notion, as he calls it, the self-fulfillment, ethic, that, Um, you know, the second thing on your list there is that in marriage we have to do things that we don't really like and we're not good at. And in our day of professionalization, we don't have to do that in a lot of other areas. I go to work and I chose my job because it's something that I love and I get to specialize in it and they give me a job description and I can clearly see what is expected of me and what the outcome of that will be. And I come home and things like the toilet have to be fixed. And the yard has to be mowed. And when kids were little, their diapers had to be changed. And you have to go to the grocery and you have to put things away and there's laundry to be done. And there's things that, I don't know about you, but I don't just hear any of us going, Woo! I'm excited about that. And oftentimes the functionality of life We begin to view that as a commentary on our marriage. As if the marriage is bad because it's so functional. And we have other relationships where we get to do those things that we're passionate about. Or an illicit relationship comes up that has no responsibilities and no expectations of me. And I begin to give myself to that. And all of a sudden, that becomes good. And anything that has this expectation of something that I'm not good at or I don't really like becomes bad. And when we have this highly romanticized view of marriage, we begin to grade marriage on a negative curve because it requires a level of functionality. And another part of that uh, self-fulfillment ethic uh, that I think in particularly in our highly transient day and age is we try to make marriage our church. Uh, we, We live in a day and age when few people really know us. We communicate in emails and tweets and sound bites. Very few of us live in the town where we grew up in. Yet, marriage becomes the only place where we're really known. Where somebody gets to see our faults. And because of that, marriage is much more unique as a relationship than God ever intended it to be. All the time, I hear couples in my office saying, You don't ever, you know, nobody else talks to me this way. Nobody else has a problem with me. All my other friends think I'm great. It's just you. And you know what? They're right. Because most of their other friends don't really know them. They don't see their faults and they don't live with them and they don't have to spread grace over them in the same way that their spouse does because they're not living in community. And they've placed this burden on their marriage that it is unique from all other relationships. And that's why I would say living in community is absolutely vital to a healthy marriage. You know, sometimes we act as if Genesis 2.18, where God said it's not good for man to be alone, as if marriage was the 100% cure that when God created Eve and brought them together, that marriage was the only thing that He created in that moment. It wasn't. God created community and friendship because it was out of those two that there became three, four, five that they populated the earth that there were more people to share life with. And only when we are deferring to one another, when we are sacrificially serving one another in a much broader context than just two, will we ever reflect the image of a triune God. God doesn't exist as a duality. He exists in community as a trinity. And when we try to make marriage our church, we put something on it that it just wasn't created uh, to bear. One final thought here. Um, John Piper says, when you marry a person, you don't know what they're going to be like in 30 years. Um, you know, there, we're both changing people. You're going to be married to dozens of people over the course of your marriage. I can tell you that insecure, scared young man who stood in front of my wife and took vows to her, who at that point was from a small town that didn't have a McDonald's that had fewer citizens uh, than Summit does members, um, is very different from the person that you see in front of you right now. And it's different from who I'll be 10 years from now. Because life changes us. And what's the relevance of that? This counters most of our reasons for divorce based on irreconcilable differences. We're just not the same people anymore. I don't know who that person is in my living room. We fell out of love. We're not the same two people. Did you expect to be? I don't mean to be a jerk. But honestly, did you expect to be the same person for the next 50 years of your life? Did you say, yes, I'm committed to you as long as you remain the person who's in front of me right now? And here's an implication. If I'm going to be a good spouse, I have to be an incredible student of my wife. And that's what the entire next section will be about. But let me close this first chapter with this statement. It's easy to get overwhelmed and say, you know what, we just looked at 10 of 20 and I already feel like I'm blowing it. I feel like I've got to be a perfect person in order to be you know, married and have a good marriage. Well, and there's one sense in which Jesus would say, you're right. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, 5, 48, he says we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. But he said that not to discourage us, but to bring revival. And here would be my contention for this series. This is my conviction. We want more than marital enrichment. We want marital revival. We desperately need an awakening to what God has called marriage to be. Not just a mere nudging towards more functional principles. We need an overhaul of our common sense and best practices. Because when you look at the statistics, they're not working. If we want a gospel-centered marriage, we must realize that that is an endeavor that will cast us to our knees, begging God for the grace and the strength and the wisdom to bless our spouse and our homes in a way that we are, in and of ourselves, incapable and, if we admit it, oftentimes even unwilling to do. But here's my word of encouragement. From our knees, we will find that God is both willing and capable to give us the kind of marriage that we could have never had from our feet when we thought this was something that we could do, when we tried to live self-sufficient marriages instead of gospel-centered marriages. And so if you say, what's the one big idea I want to take from this first section? It's this. It's let me be humble. The mark of a spouse pursuing a gospel-centered marriage is humility and reliance upon God for what they need.